Hi guys, you're listening to Irrepressible, the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Ashley. I'm an entrepreneur, a content creator, and I have a background in styling where I've worked alongside some of the biggest names in Hollywood, like Ariana Grande and Melissa McCarthy. You're in the right place if you're looking for a realistic approach to life because we're about to have some eye-opening conversations on how to do so. So let's jump into today's conversation. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Irrepressible. For anyone new around here, I am Erica Ashley. Welcome. I'm so happy to have you. For those of you who have been listening for a while, you know I don't normally say things like this, but today's episode might just be my favorite episode so far. That's a big thing to say, but I have Yulene Kwong on the podcast and she is a director here in Hollywood and her energy is infectious and her outlook on life is just really incredible. She's so funny. She's so talented and I'm really excited for you guys to get to meet her. Last year, she was nominated for a daytime Emmy for the Healing Powers of Dude on Netflix. In 2019, she was also nominated for a WGA award for Love Daily, which is a series on awesomeness TV. She recently directed an episode of Dollface, which is one of my favorite shows ever. It's with Kat Dennings, Brenda Song, Shay Mitchell. Um, If you haven't watched it, watch it because I've been a fan from the beginning. She directed an episode in season two. And I know you guys really love the behind the scenes of the entertainment industry, and she gives a really good look at that. We talk about things that go on behind the scenes, women in film, going after your dreams, how to handle imposter syndrome, how to handle rejection, storytelling. We did a rapid fire at the end and I asked her what she thought the biggest misconception about Hollywood is. And her answer was not something I expected, but I really loved her response to that. There are a few film terms in this episode. I wanted to just give you guys the lowdown on so you're not lost. She mentions the DGA and the WGA, Those are the Directors Guild of America and the Writers Guild of America. She also mentions DP, which stands for Director of Photography. I want to just keep talking, but today's episode is a little longer than what we've been doing because there are just so many good nuggets in this episode, so I want to jump right in. Also, just a heads up, there are a few places in the audio where sound kind of goes in and out. It's not the whole episode. It's just a couple spots here and there. It's annoying. I'm sorry. We did the best we could. We worked on it. And sometimes audio just isn't as forgiving as you'd like it to be. So bear with me this week. I apologize, but you'll still get 100% of the goods from this episode. So without further ado, here is Eileen. So I am Eileen Kwong. Um, I am a screenwriter and director. Um, I got into directing because in college, I was writing a bunch of screenplays um, at Carnegie Mellon, which has a great, it has a really great drama program and a really great computer science program. And I studied the humanities. Um, So I was writing all these screenplays while I was there and handing them off to other people to direct. And then they kept fucking it up. So I was like, 
I'm going to do it. And uh, that's kind of how I came to directing. Um, And I kind of really fell in love with it. And then I moved out to LA and I did the NBC page program where I learned, I don't like thrive in office environments. Um, So I was making short films on the weekends so that I would feel something. And I was sending them off to film festivals where the median age was about like 65. And all of the films I was doing were like coming of age, kind of like dramedy short films um, with titles like The Perils of Growing Up Flat-Chested. And so it killed with the crowd, but it was not my target demo. And so somebody told me you should check out VidCon, which is this convention for online video. So I went down to Anaheim and it was like a sea of screaming teenage fangirls. So I was like, oh my God, my people are here. So I started two YouTube channels. Um, I did a whole bunch of like web series. And uh, one of them, I did like a Tumblr transmedia experiment because it was like 2014 and uh, transmedia was all the rage on Tumblr. Uh, And so that went kind of like Tumblr viral. And then that's how Ron Howard and Brian Grazer's company found me. And they were like, do you want to do a short film? We'll give you like $10,000 for a short film. And I was like, oh my God, I'm rich. So I did a short film with them. We sold that to the CW Seed, which is the CW's digital platform as a web series. Did the web series that won a Streamy Award. So then the CW came back to me and they were like, do you want to do this as a TV show. And I was like, obviously, yes. But because at this point, I'm a very plucky, like 27 year old. I was like, I will only do it if you let me totally reboot it. It's like a complete, like musical previous ones had been like, following a band. Um, And they were like, that's totally fine. Sure. So I did that. It was very cool. I got to have a show on the CW summer schedule in 2019 for like a hot two weeks, I think, before we had the second lowest ratings, I think, in all of CW history. And so we were promptly canceled. Um, But I like to think it was a victory. We got on air. And then I also got my next directing assignment, which was for The Healing Powers of Dude, which was a show on Netflix about a kid with social anxiety who has a talking dog. Um, So I directed two episodes, which was very fun. and then that one, we had a nominate a daytime Emmy nomination as a directing team, which is very exciting. And then I directed an episode of Dollface on the second season uh, this past year. You have had such a journey. And I love hearing all of that because I feel like one thing just really led into the next. Did it feel that seamless as you were like Absolutely moving through things? Not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I mean, I also am a screenwriter, so threaded through this. Um, I I was also like selling pilots that would die (laughs) when our executives left uh, the studio. I was selling features um, that also died. (laughs) And so it was, it was very exciting to be selling things, um, but then uh, they wouldn't get made. (laughs) And so it was kind of like, okay, I, my great passion and the reason I love films over all mediums is because I like standing in the worlds we've built. Like I really like writing something and dreaming it up and then getting to actually see it and stand in it. Um, and so directing is kind of where I get to do that the most. And, and that's a thing I really love doing. But yeah, no, it definitely didn't feel uh, smooth <laughs> in terms of the journey. I remember at one point in 2019, I think I had like um, how to Uber and Lyft for money, like open on my screen. And then the next day I got a phone call from my agent that was like, hey, they want to buy the movie from you. And I was like, sweet, great. 
close that. <laughs> I think people think it's so limited to actors, like the struggling actor trying to catch a break. But really, I feel like all parts of this industry kind of have that same, like, how do I get in? How do I sell something? How do I get people to buy into what my ideas are? Yeah. I mean, it's all kind of a lottery, isn't it? Like, like if you're born into the right, like time period, um, the right amount of financial support, parental support, like pure fucking talent, like any one of those things on its own probably won't help you. But I think and it's also not like you have it or you don't, right? You have some people have more financial support, and some people have more talent, and some people have more whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, and it's kind of what I've found is like, just take advantage of every single advantage that you have on behalf of all the people who don't have those advantages, um, because at the end of the day, you can't really deserve a career in the arts. Is my feeling is you can you can win the lottery. And you can make that happen by like taking advantage of all the advantages you have, but some people don't win the lottery. <laughs> so I, I guess it's like a really hard thing where it, it can drive you to madness probably, where you're in control of some things and you're really not in control of other things. So I choose to focus on the things I can control. Yes, I totally agree. I want to go back to your childhood. What were you like? Were you very headstrong because I feel like that's what how you are now oh god how was I as a child I was so serious there's a painting I'm in the wrong room to show it to you but um there's a painting that I sat for at age seven um we were we moved to Kansas when I was three from uh Guangzhou China and my parents were grad students there and so I think all of their friends kind of took us in and one of their friends um she was taking a painting class she was a scientist who was taking a painting class my parents are scientists um and so I sat for this portrait and I am such a serious little like almost Victorian girl pink sailor outfit on and my husband when he looks at it he describes it as like a general contemplating her plans um <laughs> like I think I, I I gave off the energy of like probably some like old ghost that had been reincarnated into the body of this small Chinese immigrant child. Um, that was probably my vibe. I was very shy. I hated that I was shy. I worked very hard to overcome my own shyness, I think probably in my 20s more. I, I tried in my teens as well, unsuccessfully. Um, so yeah, that was probably the earliest. So like, that's like first 10 years, right? Next 10 years in high school, who was I in high school? I was like editor in chief of the school newspaper. I was not in the top like 10% of my class. I think I was in the top like 30%. I had to take the SATs twice <laughs> to get over the like mental barrier of where I wanted to be. So I was like, I was like smart and I was friends with like the really smart kids, but I secretly knew I was not as smart as them. <laughs> um, and on some level I was like, I'm willing to work very hard at the things that I'm good at. Like I remember a teacher telling me something like, you know, at some point in your life, somebody gave you the idea that you only need to be good at the things you enjoy. And that person's wrong, which was like, oh, okay. And that was very useful to me. Sorry, we're crawling the depths of my memory of high school. Most of it's very suppressed, I think. Because um, I don't think I enjoyed high school, honestly. I think I, I felt very like 
like I would have crushes on boys who did not like me, but they liked my best friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, in high school was kind of pursuing friendships that I felt my parents would like. Mm-hmm. So like in middle school, I was friends with moody artsy weirdos like me. Um, but then in high school, when those kids started experimenting with drugs, <laughs> I was an sex. I was like, I am perhaps not ready for this. Um, so I'm going to go the opposite direction and I'm going to hang with all the like preppy fucking Asian nerds. And, um, that didn't make me feel great about myself either. Cause I felt like I was like, well, I don't think I belong in either of these worlds. <laughs> so that was, that was the childhood experience. That's amazing. I feel like that had to have built kind of your, like, does that play into your writing then? Definitely. I'm sure there's lots of themes in my work that you could talk to my therapist about and have a (laughs) fascinating conversation. Um, Yeah, no, I think that there is the themes that I always come to are I love hungry women. Like I love women who know what they want and go after it with like a, a almost unattractive degree of passion. Um, And I love I love prickly heroines who are kind of alphas. Those are people I tend to enjoy. Um, And I love a love story. I love a second chance romance, especially, I think, because I think I like to buy into the idea that if you fuck it up the first time, you'll have a second chance to get it back if it's right. Those are the stories I'm constantly telling myself that I too am lovable. (laughs) Yes, I love that. I feel like those are the kind of stories I like too. Mm-hmm. And I have been a fan of Dollface since it premiered. And in talking with you, I'm like, you are the perfect person to have directed an episode of oh, Dollface. Thank you. It was very fun. Oh my gosh, that team was great. Since we're speaking about women, I feel like I would be doing a disservice to our female listeners if I don't bring up women in film. Mm-hmm. So I read the statistic and it says, this is according to the Center for the Study of Women in Television and Film. That of, of the top films from 2007 to 2021, only 5.4% of directors were women. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, films with women directors have a slightly higher on average Metacritic score than those films with only men at the helm. Hmm. And I think that's, that's just so interesting. But I wanted to hear your perspective on being a woman in film and what that's been like for you. So in the beginning, I think I would pay a lot of attention to those types of statistics. Like I would look at them and I would wring my hands over them and I would reblog all the things that were like, isn't this terrible? Oh my God. Um, And then I realized I was like, it wasn't helping me to Mm -hmm. focus on how hard it was to break into this industry I desperately wanted to focus on or I desperately wanted to break into. And at some point I just stopped reading those statistics like that they they come out every year from every guild um and they're all terrible like and it's not just for women right it's also for women of color um and so when i would look at those statistics it would be like oh you thought it was bad it's even worse and so i was just like why am i doing this to myself why am i constantly exposing myself to things telling me like it's hard it's like i know it's hard i'm doing it and so i stopped reading those until maybe a couple years ago when I got into the DGA and the WGA and I was selling projects to these major studios um, and directing episodes for major networks. 
And then I was looking at those statistics because they didn't feel depressing. I mean, they are depressing, but there was a little bit of a, a like silver lining to me in that I was like, I'm now represented in the side that I would like to be. And by, by like kind of participating as I do, I'm already working at changing those statistics. And hopefully as I build my career, I'll be in a position where I can like change those statistics in a more institutional way. Like I would love to be at a point where I have some sort of overall deal where I can help more like women and especially more women of color as well. Um, but it, in the meantime, for anybody who's listening, I kind of go by that. What is that like Star Wars quotes where he's like, never tell me the odds. Like, don't fucking listen to the odds. <laughs> They're depressing. I guarantee you they will tell you no new information other than it's bad. <laughs> I completely agree. I have sort of the same mindset where it's like, I don't think you should continuously subject yourself to things that are just making you feel bad about yourself. Mm -hmm. But I know that this comes up a lot because you hear it in the Oscars and you know, everything. But my next question for you then is, do you think that there are just fewer women who are interested in these types of jobs? Or do you think that there are more of them and they really are just completely underrepresented? Yeah. So I don't know is the yeah. thing. I wonder if there's more women that are kind of self gatekeeping early mm -hmm. on where it's like, a, oh, I have this image in my head of what a director is. And because I am not that, then I'm not going to do it. I definitely had that a little bit in the beginning because I, I thought I just wanted to be a screenwriter. And the whole reason I became a director was because everybody else was fucking it up. Most of them were men. Um, and so I, I do think that there has to be some sort of switch click for, mm. for a lot of women that maybe don't see themselves that way. Um, and maybe because of like, the groundwater that we all come from. Like you're never as progressive as we all are these days, hopefully. Um, it's still, we're still built on top of past pain, right? So I do think the way that women have come up in this society, we are less likely maybe to think of those roles first. Although, although when you think about early, early days film, like old school film history, I think like Alice White, was that her name? Um, she was like one of the earliest film directors was a woman. And in the beginning, there were a decent number, I want to say, of like women directors because people were kind of like, oh yeah, that's like film is like a silly thing. And so women were like, yeah, we'll do it. And then eventually it became like the bro fest that it is today. <laughs> um, so I don't know, really. I, I think women are interested in it, um, but it's a twofold issue. I think part of it might be that some women uh, don't identify it as I'm interested in directing early on. Maybe they're like, oh, I just have a creative vision and I have a lot of strong opinions, but I don't wanna be the one making those decisions. And then it's like, why do you feel that way? Is that because of who you are as a person or is the person you are somebody who's been conditioned to feel that way um, by society. So I think that is a thing you have to kind of truly ask yourself, like, does some part of me actually really want to, and I'm holding myself back out of fear, or is it, I really know myself and like, I genuinely have no desire to, to direct ever. So that's like the first question. And then later on, at, there is a thing where I think you see more women early on in the journey and then the ranks kind of do thin out. That hasn't been my 
experience exactly because I think as I've gotten to join the like women in film groups and all these things to meet new women that are in these circles. So I, I would say my circle has felt like it's expanded, but I do imagine for every new person I meet, there's like probably like two or three that I, I knew once that just didn't make it to this point. Yeah. Okay. So for anyone who is like, what exactly is the role of a director? Can you explain what your job is? Yeah. It's slightly different for television versus features. So when most people think of directors, I think they think of features directors. So you're kind of somebody who's coming in, you've pitched on a project or you wrote something and you're um, directing your own thing. So then my first move usually is to read through the script, um, kind of come up with my directorial vision for it. So that includes like, what is the cinematography going to look like? What's the sound design going to be? What's the editing approach going to be? What's like the production design? What's the color palette? What's the music approach? All of the things that make a movie, I have an idea of the vibe. I am not the person who's going to execute any of those things because I do not know how to turn on a camera, (laughs) Um, but I know what I want to achieve, right? So a lot of directing is kind of, I would say it's the power of persuasion and Mm. kind of being understood, being able to speak the same language as all these different, like incredible artists that you're working with and telling them, this is what I want to achieve. These are some ideas I have, but I'm open to whatever you want to do in terms of like, how do we achieve that vision? Um, And what I love about it is it's such a collaborative medium. So that's kind of directing for features. Um, Directing for television is slightly different in that you're usually responding to a showrunner. So like on set for The Healing Powers of Dude and for Dollface, there was a showrunner who was kind of sitting next to me and it's really their vision. And so in this case, I'm more there to, I think you're, you're kind of protecting the episode specifically um, because the, everybody else there is kind of there for the long game. They're there to, to uphold the vision of the show and kind of keep everything going on track to what the vision of the showrunner is for the show. As the episodic director, you're kind of coming in, you're deferring to that vision. I'm not coming in with like, new ideas for like, oh, I want to do everything totally different. If there's a new set, if there's a new location that hasn't been established, I'll weigh in like, hey, this is how I kind of see it. This is, these are the type of locations I would love to scout. Um, I'll usually like have a conversation with production design if there's like something that I want to do there that's interesting or different. Um, And I'll usually have a couple of like specialty shots to talk to the cinematographer about. Um, But ultimately, I want to make sure any ideas I'm bringing to the table fit within the scope of the show. And if there's ever a situation where our opinions differ, I always defer to the showrunner. Um, So it's a very different game. And I think that in episodic, what I bring to the table is kind of fresh eyes. Like everybody there has kind of been working on the show for a while usually. And so um, at that point, what I'm doing is, is just kind of looking out for the episode I'm there for. Mm -hmm. What do you think is essential when it comes to storytelling, whether it's film or an, or an episodic? I think, um, emotional vulnerability is the thing that I find the most useful. Like I, I think my favorite feeling in any kind of art is when I can see a thought or a feeling and feel like, 
I too have had that thought or that feeling, especially if it's somebody I've never met. It just makes me feel very understood. And I feel like that's kind of the purpose of art is to make other people feel less alone. I, I also think it's kind of like, if, if emotions were paint colors, then the entire history of art is us trying as artists to kind of catalog the entire spectrum of human emotions as specific paint colors. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of my <laughs> take on that. What's your creative process like, whether it's script writing or preparing for an episode or a film? Like, do you have a specific process? Yeah, I have a different process for every every format. So um, if I'm writing a pilot, I've developed a couple of pilots at this point. What I'll usually do is I'll, I'll have a germ of something from my life. Like I call them emotional scabs. I have an emotional scab that I am picking. And then I'll take uh, the, the one I like for TV is um, Dan Harmon's story circle. I think that's a really good story structure where it's a character starting in a normal world, but they want something. So they go to get it and then they return to their normal world having changed. So that's a very nice, clean story structure that feels like the kind of journey I always want to take whenever I'm watching television. Um, And so I kind of use that to break out the kind of story that I want to do. Um, For features, I tend to do the same thing. I start with an emotional scab that I'm picking like, hey guys, this is about how I like had like, I'm trying to think of something that's like not too emotionally wounding because all the things I'm thinking of are like, my sister is a bitch, but it's, it's but she's not. She's just much younger than me. <laughs> um, so we have a hard time talking to each other sometimes. Um, but like, that's an example, right? If I had like a, a very recent kind of like sticky interaction with my sister, I would then examine why do I feel the feelings that I do? Um, what's there that I can't let go of? And then I would be like, how can this turn into a story? So if it's a feature, then I would take that and then I would put it through um, the Save the Cat beat sheet, which is kind of a opening image. And then it's like your character starting in their like normal world-ish. And then there's like theme stated, fun and games. I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head. There's a lot more beats in the Save the Cat structure than there are in the story circle. Um, but that's why I think it works better for features. So I typically use that for features. And then in terms of my directing process, um, I'll typically read the script. I'll do like kind of a shot breakdown of how I see it. Like, would we go to a wide here? Would we go to something here? I pay a lot of attention to the transitions between scenes because Um, I think at the beginning of my career, I really didn't pay attention to transitions and uh, I can feel it when I watch them back. Um, So that's kind of that process these days. A few minutes ago, you mentioned when you were first getting into the directing scene, you felt maybe like you didn't belong there, essentially. Do you feel like you dealt with imposter syndrome? I absolutely dealt with imposter syndrome. And then the best advice I ever received when I asked this like more senior, like more established person, how do you deal with imposter syndrome? Um, He said, well, at a certain point, it just becomes unseemly. And I was like, oh, I don't want to be fucking unseemly. (laughs) So I think he gave me a new anxiety to combat the imposter syndrome. 
That's I've never heard somebody say that, but that's so interesting. (laughs) So for someone who is like, I want to get into directing, I want to do something creative. Maybe it's writing, maybe it is directing. What advice would you give them? say start now. Um, I think it's kind of a a thing where there's going to be so many people who will say no to you. There will be so many people who will flake out on you, especially if you have no money, which I had no money in the beginning. Um, And so don't say no to yourself first. You know, I think other, let, let other people do that. Um, Just, just dive in, say yes to yourself and then see what happens. And what about dealing with rejection? How do you handle that? Um, how do I deal with that? Rejection still stings. I'm not going to lie. Um, it's a, it's a thing that we all work through, right? Cause I think with every rejection, I'm suddenly like 17, 16 again. And it's like that boy I liked who didn't like me back. And it's just like, oh no, <laughs> will no one ever love me? And maybe that's why I have a thriving career is I'm constantly trying to prove those people wrong. Um, but yeah, how do I deal with just- rejection. I think, you know, you, you kind of let yourself feel your feelings. Um, because what I've learned is that by clicking them off, uh, that doesn't actually solve anything. (laughs) Um, so feel the feelings and then kind of give yourself an end date to the wallowing because Mm. there is such a thing as too much wallowing. Um, and I would always rather move on. And I did have a friend who said this one thing that I also found useful. Um, he said something like, if a piece of work that I'm putting out into the world isn't getting the response that I wanted to, um, after a while, I just accept that it wasn't good enough and it's time to make something else, um, which I found very helpful because for a while, I think I was stuck in this holding pattern where I was like, well, I made these things and I made these things and they're not getting the attention I want. So like, what am I supposed to do? And like hearing him say that I was like, oh, well, they just weren't good enough to get what I wanted. So it's time to make something new rather than trying to like shovel the same old shit down people's throats. Um, so that was useful to me. Obviously my inner critic is like alive and thriving. And so I'm not always very kind to myself when in the framing of these things, but I think you probably could find a a kinder way to frame it to yourself than uh, it wasn't good enough, but I find it wasn't good enough to be effective. So that's what I use. I feel like you're very much a glass half full kind of person. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for seeing that in me. (laughs) Yeah. I see it so clearly. What advice do you have to help somebody see things in the positive, like when things are hard, when things aren't working out, when nobody's seeing that thing? Um, I mean, you kind of have to believe in yourself when others don't, right? And that's hard sometimes when other people really don't believe in you. <laughs> um, yeah. And so like, that's really tricky. And so I find when I feel very stuck, sometimes I turn to other forms of art. Like I love going to a museum um, and like wandering through and feeling again, less alone, because I think that is what the entire history of art is. And like, you see art where other artists are like, I feel depressed and sad and maybe a little horny too. And you're like me too. (laughs) Um, And then you go home and you make your art. That's like, See, people haven't changed that much in 200 years. Um, So that's one thing I do. Um, Another thing I do, sometimes I mix up the format of what I'm doing. Like if I'm feeling really stuck in features, I'll work on a a pilot. If I'm feeling Mm -hmm. stuck on a pilot, I'll try and write a novel. (laughs) Um, If I'm feeling stuck in that area, I, my thing is I kind of try to like never let myself 
feel stuck because if I feel stuck, I feel out of control. And, and there are so many things obviously that aren't in our control. So I always try to focus on the things that I, I can change about my situation. Um, so like that includes things like on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I write. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I focus on development. Um, so that's like meetings or like breaking a new story or coming up with a pitch deck or sending emails. Um, and so that, that way, what usually happens is on Monday, I'm working on a project by like 4 PM. I'm like, oh my God, I hate this project. Get me out of here. So then when I wake up on Tuesday, I'm like, well, I don't even have to think about that project. Now let me do all this. And then by the end of the day, I'm like, I'm a piece of shit. I haven't done any work today. It's okay. Wednesday's a new day. So then Wednesday I work on the thing and the cycle repeats. So that's kind of what I do. I do try really hard now to respect my weekends. I think at a point in my twenties, I had this like kind of toxic like work, 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 work all the time mentality. And then I realized that wasn't actually helping me because you, as a storyteller, you kind of have to have like a life to tell stories about. <laughs> um, and so, and I didn't have any hobbies, like all of the things I thought were hobbies, like reading romance novels and watching like comedy shows. I'm like, th- that was work. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, so I started, figure skating back in like 2018. Um, and that was very helpful to me because it was like this one thing that I was not good at. Um, and it, it, it was very healing in a weird way to be like, this is a thing that I'm not good at. It's never going to be helpful to me in my career, at least not on purpose. Um, but I am the kind of, I want to be the kind of person who can figure skate. So I'm going to become that kind of person for me. Um, And so that was very helpful. So I think that's another thing is like when you're feeling those feelings, like turn to your hobbies. And if you don't have any hobbies, go get some. (laughs) I love that. I relate to that so much because lately I've really been like, I need to have a weekend separate from work because I'm exactly like you. Like I will just keep going and going and going. I think a lot of creative people are like that. How do you set boundaries between work and time off? Um, So yeah, currently that boundary exists in the form of like 5 PM on Friday um, through like 9 AM on Monday. So I just don't do work between those times um, and kind of use that time to recharge. Um, in terms of the rest of it, I mean, that's kind of it. Like, and, and it's not a hard boundary because I, I'm, I do have like notes apps that I'll like jot ideas into when they come to me. But, um, for the most part, I think it's so important to like refill the well. Um, and if you're running on empty constantly, the work you're making, just isn't going to be very good. I mean, maybe it will be, and you're just better than me, but I was finding (laughs) that the work I was making when I was on fumes was nowhere near the work I was making when I like was rested. Yes, I totally agree. Okay. I want to end with a few, I call them rapid fire questions, but if you have a longer answer, totally fair game. What is one misconception you think people have about Hollywood? That people are fake. I don't think we're fake. I think Um, I think Hollywood people are very honest, um, and kind of yes anders, like they bring a yes and energy to things. Um, 
And I also think that we're all, it's a culture of oversharing. Like I went um, back home to the East Coast recently. Um, and I remember it was like, it was such dry, dry conversation. And I was like, trying to talk to these people about their childhood traumas a little bit. And they were kind of looking at me like, why? And I was like, well, because I'm interested in you as a human. <laughs> um, and then I came back to LA. I landed at LAX. And as I was like walking to the like rideshare thing, I was listening to someone talk to the person next to them. And he was just like, and the thing about her is that she's just wrong. And I hate her for it, but like, blah, blah, blah. And I think that I was like, I'm amongst my people again, <laughs> um, where I think it's just like, there's, there's a, there's a culture here of oversharing. And like, sometimes it might make you think that you are closer to somebody than you actually are, um, which I think some people can interpret as fakeness, but I don't think it's actually fake. I think it's just, we're being honest and we're oversharing. And I would rather be in a place where people err on the side of oversharing than in a place where um, people kind of close everything off, which is the, the kind of culture of the coast that I originally came from, um, which is also probably why I didn't feel like I quite belonged there. That's a great answer. Okay. This might sound cliche, but I feel like you have to ask a director what their favorite movie is. <laughs> God. Um, I mean, when Harry met Sally is the ultimate all-time favorite, right? Like I think it's a rom-com that one invented rom-coms, but also understood that uh, just because it ends happily, that doesn't mean these characters uh, can't experience deep emotional pain before they get that happily ever after. And I do think that's kind of life, right? You you experience deep pain. And so it makes the emotional highs feel sweeter. Um, and when you click off everything so that you're only feeling one emotion, it becomes kind of a monotone and you're not feeling anything. Um, so I think that's a movie that really understood that and did that really, really well. Um, a movie I, I loved a ton when I was in college was Gosford Park. It's like Robert Altman, and like Julian Fellows wrote the screenplay. It, it's like a murder mystery in a dinner party in like the 19, what is it, 30s? Um, and it's kind of like the last gasp of this kind of old world uh, glamour of upstairs, downstairs and intrigue. Um, and I love that one. It's so twisty and everybody has, it, I think it's a, a master study in like how everybody has a motive um, and something's going on with every character. It's, it's a great ensemble movie. I'm trying to think if there's anything more recent that I've loved. I mean, I loved Normal People. I watch that whenever I do my taxes because <laughs> it, um, it's, it's, I've watched it enough times that I can follow the plot and it's like just horny enough to keep me awake. So <laughs> That's what I do. That's what I watch. <laughs> when you're feeling down, how do you cheer yourself up? I usually go figure skating um, because uh, I can't focus on anything but my body. Otherwise, I will fall. Um, and so that helps me a lot. What else do I do? Uh, sometimes I'll, I, I, my husband bought a, uh, not a piano. He bought a keyboard with weighted keys though. So it's good um, mm. during the pandemic. And so I've gotten back into playing piano. I was never good. I was never a talent. My piano teacher absolutely hated me. Um, but 
what I've learned about myself is that I had the wrong approach before, which was I was just trying to learn music that she wanted me to learn. Whereas I think if I get really invested in a TV show, like I got really invested in this K-drama called Crash Landing on You, which I'm obsessed with. Circling back to the previous question, it's like the <laughs> South Korean heiress who um, is product testing her athleisure line. So she's paragliding and then she gets caught in a tornado and then she's dropped into the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. And then this uh, captain of the guard of the North Korean soldiers like spots her and then she accidentally runs into the North Korean side. It's this weird kind of like Wizard of Oz meets Romeo and Juliet. Also deeply romantic, so funny, so like deep, deep, swoony, swoony feels. So anyway, there's this side plot in that in that k-drama it's on netflix you guys should all watch it um where uh the captain the north korean captain in another life he was a concert pianist uh but then his his older brother was murdered by this evil guy whatever and he became the captain of the guard um but but before that he had written this beautiful song to play for his brother when his brother was going to pick him up so he plays this beautiful, beautiful song on like the docks in Switzerland as he's waiting for the boat to go home. Um, and our heroine hears it as she's like fucking suicidal on a boat nearby. And she's like, I'm going to live for something like it's all very it sounds melodramatic because those people are master storytellers. If you want to know how to like sell an emotion that sounds unhinged, a, a like storyline that sounds unhinged, that's a great thing to watch anyway. That, that song exists, obviously. And so I, when I was like, maybe I'll take up piano again, I found the sheet music for that. And I learned that piece. And I was like, oh, this is how I stay invested in a piece of music long enough to learn it. So um, if that answers your question, I think both of them are, I need to get out of my head and into my body is the short version of what do I do? That's amazing. Okay. What's your favorite part of your job? Um, I mean, I love standing in the worlds we've built. Um, so I love like <clears throat> dreaming up an idea and then turning it into script form and then like literally standing on the set with like the DP and the production designer and the actors and like film is such a collaborative medium, but I I, there's this um, that I really love and that like you need to experience that magic with people who are on set with you. Um, so I, I think that's my favorite thing. How do you stay true to yourself? How do I stay true to myself? Sometimes I'm like, who am I? <laughs> um, so I think I, part of that is probably how, right? Like I, I kind of touch base with myself and I'm like, who are we today? Cause we all contain multitudes. Um, like, I feel like going into every meeting, I'm always like, what version of me am I going to be today? Do I feel like the more romantic version of myself? Do I feel like the like boss bitch alpha version of myself? Do I feel like the moody artsy weirdo version of myself? They're all me. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of, what I've accepted is that there's, there's many, there's many versions of me. They're all me. Um, and so kind of trying to stay true to myself becomes this chase of like, which one feels the most true today. One thing I have found helpful is um, examining my own like id level tropes as a storyteller. So like the things on a lizard brain level that I am just attracted to and can't explain why, 
So that's like, like I have them on this glass dry erase board. I love angst fluff. I love enemies to lovers. I love life and death stakes. I love marriage of convenience, marriage and perils, second chance romance, charming con artists, all these things. <laughs> um, these are things that I'm like, I love them so much that I can't explain them or I could explain them, but we'd have to like talk about my childhood more. Um, and so it's, it's those kind of things make me feel like, okay, these are a consistent compass for me creatively and just personality wise. These are just the things that I like. Amazing. Okay. And then finally, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Best piece. Um, that's so hard because I've had so many good advice things. Like I, I really do think that like one thing about, um, imposter syndrome being like at a certain point, uh, it becomes unseemly. Um, that was very helpful to me. My friend being like, if a work isn't getting the re response, it should, then it just wasn't good enough and move on. That was also very useful to me. I think in general, like the bet, the advice I tend to respond the most to is action oriented, I think, mm -hmm. or it's quieting my own anxieties. Um, so I don't really have a great answer to that. I find useful is like people who finding people who kind of speak the same language as me. I think other people call it like finding your tribe. Um, I'm kind of like, I know how to talk to people generally, but there are some people that you just really sense like a connection with and you can talk to them. And it's like, I feel deeply understood by this person. Um, and I trust this person. And so when I find those people and there aren't like a ton, ton of them, um, I tend to listen very closely to the things they say, but of course, right now, all the things that they have said are escaping me. <laughs> Amazing. Can you let everyone know where they can find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Yulin Kuang, Y-U-L-I-N-K-U-A-N-G. I'm not on Twitter that much, honestly. Um, you know what? I, I want to answer that last, last question again. Um, a piece of advice I once received was say less. And that was great. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, on Twitter, I generally try to say less because I believe that there are a lot of very smart people on there that I would rather be listening to. Um, and then on Instagram, I am also at Yulene. I think there's a dot in the middle, Kwong. So it's like Yulene.Kwong. It's because my cousin is also named Yulene Kwong. Um, I know. It, she has different characters, different Chinese characters to her name. So it's not the exact same in Chinese. But the anglicization of it is Yulene Kwong. And she got on Instagram first. <laughs> How dare but anyway, she? anyway, it's fine. Um, <laughs> I know. I don't think about it all the fucking time. Um, but yeah, so I am at Yulene.Kwong on Instagram. And then my cousin is Yulene Kwong on Instagram. If you want to give her a follow too. <laughs> Amazing. You say, say less. And I am here talking to you and I'm like, please say more. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> Thank you. Well, always leave them wanting more. Exactly. That's also good advice. If you loved this episode, please let me know subscribe, leave a review on Apple podcasts, share it on your Instagram stories and with your friends. And let's continue the conversation on Instagram. I'm at Erica Ashley and at irrepressible, the podcast. Thank you so much for being here and I will see you next week.